0: Hitler had only one big ball. Gary had two but they weren't small. Himmler had something similar. And the Goebbels had noodles at all. Ready? Hitler had only one big
1: The song you just heard was a beautiful rendition of the World War II propaganda record Hitler Has Only Got One Ball by America's sweetheart, Bette Miller. It is not a particularly persuasive argument for Allied Victory. The song is a humorous takedown of the German high command's alleged impotency. The joke is not grounded on any medical diagnosis. Quite the opposite. Through repugnant practices, the Nazis conceived thousands of children in a grand genetic experiment. Following World War I, Germany's male population was decimated. The country's birth rate fell 43% between 1920 and 1932. Chancellor Adolf Hitler worried that there were too few people to sustain his Aryan vision. Under the guidance of Heinrich Himmler, Germany erected secret facilities across Europe to breed future soldiers. Once the babies were born, they were relinquished to SS education camps be raised by Nazi-aligned families. The policy quickly devolved into government section rape. In 1940, Norway was forced to adopt the horrific system. Translated as Fount of Life, the Lebensborn Initiative faced many of the same crimes earlier programs had. Hundreds of thousands of children were kidnapped. If they failed to meet arbitrary standards for racial purity, they were executed. It is still unclear exactly how many children were conceived through the Lebensborn program. Current estimates place a tally around 20,000. Those lucky enough to survive faced further persecution. Following the war, the children were dismissed as social outcasts. In occupied countries, like Norway, women who engaged in sexual relationship with German soldiers, whether consensual or not, were treated as traitors. After the war, Norway barred Liebensborn from seeking education or employment in an attempt to expel these unwanted families from their borders. The public had such little compassion for the Liebensborn that their own government started kidnapping them again. Some children were subjected to secret military trials on drugs like mescaline and LSD, a cruel echo of the torture they had already gone through. One of the children raised in this program, Annie Fried Lingenstad, knew this prejudice all too well. Ostracized due to her father's Nazi rank, she and her mother fled Norway for Sweden. Alone in her new country, Annie Fried felt isolated and without a real home. She spent most of her teens trying and failing to connect with peers. If she had not been driven out of her homeland, she never would have met future partner Benny Anderson. By 1971, Liegensthal and Anderson had started dating. Anderson asked her if she wanted to join a new band he was working on. She agreed. Taking the first letter from the names of all four members, Annie Freed, Benny, and another couple, Bjorn Oveus and Agnatha Valkskog, the group was called A.B., B.A. ABBA. Representing her adopted Sweden in the 1974 Eurovision contest, Annie Fried found the acceptance that long eluded her. Humanity has an amazing power to persevere. Good can come out of even the darkest moments. In the end, ABBA conquered Europe and America more successfully than the Nazis ever could. Let's all be grateful for that.
0: Hi, I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is the Swedish songbird himself, Nate Youngman. And this is Off Key. This week's show, we're going to look at terrible situations that spurred great musical achievements. When I think of great music, one sound and place immediately comes to mind. That was Way Down Yonder, in New Orleans by Jimmy Noon and his New Orleans band. Jimmy Noon on clarinet, like many New Orleans musicians, got his start playing professionally in Storyville. Instead of talking about one person, I'm going to talk about how one infamous area and the greatest city in the United States created a new genre of music and a new generation of musicians who played it. In Act 1, the story of Storyville. What are we really
1: talking about here? Huh? What's the essence of what we're talking about? I'll spell it out for you if I have to.
0: Prostitution! Hmm? Storyville was the famous red-light district of New Orleans from 1897 to 1917. Sidney Story, a city alderman, wrote the guidelines and legislation to create Storyville. Originally named a district, Storyville was established to restrict prostitution to one area of the city where authorities could monitor and regulate the trade. The area was bounded by four streets, one of them being the famous Basin Street. I'm telling you, Basin Street as the street. Where all the golds from Storyville and the St. Louis Cemetery mean. Between eighteen ninety-five and nineteen fifteen, blue books were published in Storyville. These books were guides to prostitution for visitors to the district. They included house description, prices, particular services, and stock, which met the inhabitants, in each house, as well as advertisements for national and local cigar makers, distillers, lawyers, of course, restaurants, drugstores, and taxis. Each blue book was inscribed with the motto, Honi Suet K. Mal E. Pensi, maybe that's how it's pronounced, which translated means, shame on him who thinks evil of it. Establishments in Storyville ranged from cheap flop houses to elegant mansions, with prices for services ranging from 50 cents to 10 dollars. Black and white brothels coexisted in Storyville, but black men were barred from legally purchasing services in either. Following the establishment of the brothels, restaurants and saloons began to open in Storyville and with them their musical accompaniment. By 1900, Storyville was a full-fledged entertainment zone. The performers in the brothels had the freedom to experiment with the musical styles, especially the syncopated beat linked to African music traditions. Jazz did not originate in Storyville, but the district nurtured the music and its players. Initially, black and white musicians were segregated, but as time went by, white musicians were increasingly influenced by black performers and the segregation started to diminish. However, Storyville was not a rollicking amusement park. Many saw it as a pit of organized vice with a seedy underside of gambling, crime, and even murder, like the 1913 Easter morning gunfight between two rival bars instigated by an enforcer called Jip the Blood. At the beginning of the United States' involvement in World War I, however, The Secretary of War, Newton Baker, did not want the troops deployed in New Orleans to have distractions. The Navy, along with the American Social Hygiene Organization, pressured New Orleans to close Storyville, and in 1917, prostitution was made illegal. With the closing of Storyville, musicians who had relied on the district for employment were able to develop their style and evolve with the tourist industry, while others left New Orleans and expanded the rhythms of jazz across the United States. There were many New Orleans musicians who got their start in Storyville, including Jimmy Noon, who I already mentioned, as well as King Oliver, Kid Ory, and Pops Foster, but I want to concentrate on the three most notable. Ferdinand Joseph Lamothe, better known as Jelly Roll Morton, is the greatest legend of Storyville. Jelly Roll Morton was born in New Orleans in 1890. His father left his mother when Morton was three. When his mother remarried, Morton took the last name of his stepfather. At age 14, Morton began playing piano in Storyville. At the time, he was living with his church-going great-grandmother. He convinced her that he was working as a night watchman in a barrel factory. When she found out what Morton was doing, she disowned him and kicked him out of her house. He soon left Storyville and began touring the South in minstrel shows. It was during this time that he composed New Orleans Blues, which you just heard, as well as Jelly Roll Blues and King Porter Stomp. In 1915, Jelly Roll Blues was one of the first jazz compositions to be published. In 1926, Morton moved to New York and signed a contract with the Victor Talking Machine Company, although he had trouble finding musicians who wanted to play his style of music. In 1935, Morton moved to Washington, D.C. and became the manager and piano player at a bar called The Music Box. It was during his residency at the Music Box that folklorist Alan Lomax heard Morton play. Lomax invited Morton to record music and interviews for the Library of Congress. It was during these interviews that Morton claimed to have invented jazz, claiming that Buddy Bolden, who many considered to have been the inventor of jazz, played ragtime, not jazz. In 1938, Morton was stabbed at the Music Box and suffered wounds to his head and chest. A nearby whites-only hospital refused to treat him. He was transported to a black hospital further away. Martin never fully recovered from his injuries. He suffered from respiratory problems as a result and died in 1941 at the age of 51. Martin was an influence to many New Orleans piano players. One of those was Sweet Emma Barrett. Barrett was born in 1897 and began playing piano at the age of seven. In the 1920s she joined the Tuxedo Jazz Orchestra and then in 1963 she became one of the original members of the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Despite suffering a stroke in 1967, Barrett continued to play with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Of all the piano players that Morton influenced, I brought up Sweet Emma because in 1975, during my first trip to New Orleans, I was fortunate enough to see and hear Sweet Emma Barrett at age 78 play at Preservation Hall. Next up is Buddy Bolden. Charles Joseph Buddy Bolden was a contemporary of Jelly Roll Morton. Despite Morton's claim to the contrary, many music historians believe it was Bolden who developed a New Orleans style of ragtime music that later became known as jazz. Very little is known about Bolden's childhood, primarily because his family spelled their last name at least four different ways. Bolden, however, was known as King Bolden when his band was at its peak in Storyville from 1900 to 1907. His band was the first to have brass instruments play the blues, adapting ideas from the gospel music heard in church. The result was, at the time, a novel fusion of ragtime, black sacred music, marching band music, and rural blues. He rearranged his dance band so that the string instruments became the rhythm section and the front line instruments were clarinets, trombones, and Bolden on coronet. Being the father of jazz, however, came with a price. Bolden was described as a playboy and a heavy drinker. He gradually began to lose his grip on reality and his health began to fail. By 1906, Bolden exhibited unpredictable behavior filled with psychosis and paranoia. His illness was said to have been triggered by his drinking, although others claimed it was a voodoo curse. Either way, he got to the point that his mother did not feel safe around him. She signed papers and had him committed to Louisiana State Asylum, where he would reside until his death in 1931. Unfortunately, there are no known recordings of Buddy Bolden. So here is Danny Barker, another famous New Orleans jazz musician, who at the time played with Jelly Roll Morton, singing Morton's I Thought I Heard Buddy Bolden Say. I thought I heard Buddy Bolden shout. Girl, you're rusty, you're crusty. You don't know what it's all about. You rambunctious obnoxious, gonna put you out. Last but certainly not least, arguably the most famous musician to come out of Storyville was Louis Satchmo Armstrong. Although in reality, Armstrong never played music in Storyville. He did however earn money by hauling coal to the saloons and brothels in Storyville, which gave him the opportunity to listen to the music playing in the saloons, in particular King Oliver, who became Armstrong's first horn teacher and his mentor. A lot has been written about Louis Armstrong. I could spend the whole half hour talking about him, although Nate would not let me do that. Instead, I chose one possibly lesser known incident from his childhood. Armstrong's mother was 16 when she had him. He lived with his mother and then his grandmother, but at age seven, Armstrong lived with the Karnovskis, a family of Lithuanian Jews. They took him in and treated him like family. Armstrong wrote that he was surprised that the Karnofskys were also subject to discrimination by other white folks, who felt they were better than Jews. Armstrong's first musical performance may have been at the side of the Karnowskis' junk wagon. To distinguish their wagon from other hawkers, Armstrong tried to play a tin horn to attract customers. Armstrong wore a star of David until the end of his life in memory of the family who raised him. While not overtly political, Armstrong did use the lessons he learned from the Karnowskis later in his life, as in 1957, when he called President Eisenhower two-faced and gutless for his inaction during the school desegregation conflict in Little Rock, Arkansas. Armstrong went on to a five-decade career and become one of the most influential figures in jazz. Through his playing, the trumpet emerged as a solo instrument in jazz. In 1964, his version of Hello, Dolly! remained on Billboard's Hot 100 for 22 weeks and went to number one, making him, at 62 years, 9 months, and 5 days, the oldest person to accomplish that feat. In the process, he knocked the Beatles from the number one position they had occupied for 14 consecutive weeks. To sum up Louis Armstrong's career, who would know better than another jazz great, Duke Ellington. In 1961, shortly before Armstrong's death, Ellington said in an article in Downbeat magazine, if anybody was a master, it was Louis Armstrong. He was and will continue to be the embodiment of jazz. Not bad for a Storyville coal hauler. Now when the Saints go marching in, in. I when the Saints go marching in, I Lord, I want to be in that number Yeah, come Trummy Young and his trombone wailing You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio Okay, good
1: story, Dad Weird and wacky stuff Now time for my act, Act 2 Drive <laughs>
0: Well, it your contribution to man, to say the least. got a little out of hand. Well, Lord Mr. Ford, what have you done?
1: Lord Charles Colchester spent his whole life claiming to know the future. The only time he truly did, no one believed him. A renowned psychic in the height of spiritualism, Colchester made his name summoning prophecies from the spirit realm. During one seance, Colchester's bluster proved too bold. He pretended a tambourine-playing ghost had appeared in the room. A doubtful client lit a match to see the spirit. The flame exposed and embarrassed Colchester, holding the instrument in his hand. The customer cut off ties with the discredited conman. Colchester had another prediction left. It came from a closer source than Dark Magic, a new drinking buddy. During booze-sucked bouts, Colchester's friend slipped that he planned to murder a man who revealed Colchester was a hoax. Colchester warned his former client of the plot against him. The advice was ignored as just a scam. When nobody heeded Colchester's advice, his drinking buddy, John Wilkes Booth, went forward with that plot. On April Fourteenth, 1865, he assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. America was forever changed. Even a true clairvoyant could not predict all the ways Lincoln's untimely death has echoed throughout the centuries. One of the stranger is the impact on music. Through a series of bizarre tangents, Colchester's drinking buddy reshaped pop history. This is a complicated tale of random coincidences and odd moments. If there's any logical place to start, it's with an illogical man. Here's a different person who had voices from the great beyond. After shooting Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth fled the crime scene on horseback. Over the next two weeks, he eluded a nationwide manhunt. Commanders instructed Booth be captured alive to stand trial. One of his men in the posse, Boston Corbett, took orders from a different source, God. The devoutly religious Corbett heard God speak to him every day. One time, after Corbett lusted for two prostitutes, like they have in Storyville, God instructed Corbett to take a pair of scissors and cut off his own testicles.
0: That I don't think happened in Storyville.
1: (laughs) As Corbett surrounded Booth at Garrett's Farm on April 26, 1865, God directed Corbett one more time. Disobeying his officer's orders, God told him to shoot Booth. The body, dragged out of the barn, was promptly buried. That's the standard history of mystical eunuch and all.
0: That's what I know.
1: Phineas Bates offers a different tale. He claims that the corpse pulled out that night was not John Wilkes Booth. Instead, Booth spent the rest of his life drifting around South Texas as a free man. This theory is not as absurd as it may seem. One conspirator, John Savat, never went to prison for his role in the assassination. He evaded capture by hiding in a pile of human feces until people sympathetic to the Confederate cause helped him escape to Egypt. It was possible the same forces held Booth out. Bates did not have to speculate about that though. He had first-hand testimony. In 1877, Bates was requested to hear a traveler's deathbed confession. Thinking this was his last chance to clear his conscience, John St. Helen revealed that he was actually John Wilkes Booth. The only problem with this moment of honesty was that St. Helen was not dying. He lived for 25 <laughs> more years. Oops. So after admitting to one of the worst crimes in history, he thought he should skip town for a bit. And more than a quarter century later, St. Helen committed suicide by ingesting arsenic. Bates bought the embalmed cadaver of St. Helen off a of mortuary. For the rest of his life, Bates traveled the country with the mummified body as a carnival display. The love of entertaining others must have been in his genes, His granddaughter is the Oscar-winning actress Kathy Bates from such roles as in Misery, Fried Green Tomatoes, and American Horror Story. But she should really be remembered is for one time, she ate a sweet potato pie with Dad and I at Mardi Gras.
0: During the Endymion Parade. I remember that.
1: Anyways, Suckers Across America got taken in by the Mummy's Ruse. Automobile tycoon Henry Ford asked Bates if he could purchase the sidetrall attraction off of him. Ford was desperate to prove that historians get facts wrong. 1919, Ford filed a $1 million lawsuit against the Chicago Tribune for libel. Ooh,
0: 1919, a million dollars is a lot of money.
1: Ford had recently embarked on a disastrous European campaign to end World War I. The newspaper described the tour as an act of an ignorant anarchist. The Tribune's lawyers had a secret tactic to easily prove the case. Invite Ford to testify. Over the next eight days, Ford was asked high school level questions about American history. Jeff Foxwood had a field day with questions like, what year did America declare its independence? And who was Baron McDonald?
0: I know both of those. 1776 and Trader.
1: Wrong. According to Ford, the answers are 1812 and Arthur. So He was proven to be so dumb that he, Ford had to admit on the record that he was ignorant about most things. The press marked Ford as a total bozo. The jury agreed that Ford was dumb as a brick, but the (laughs) Tribune was wrong to call Ford an anarchist. So for suffering, he got six cents in damages, So a bit less than the $1 million he wanted. When he left the room, he muttered to himself, never again. Ford set out to show that history, as he famously said, was bunk. Ford became obsessed with Bates' account. Ford conducted years of research and traveled to 14 states to verify the theory. He erected the Wayside Inn to house the artifact. There was one small problem with his star exhibit. Phineas Bates boasted that the corpse had a healed leg matching Booth's injuries from jumping off the balcony at Ford's cedar. Okay,
0: makes sense.
1: Fortunately, it was on the wrong leg. So, this guy's just walking around with some dead guy. (laughs) (laughs) For years, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So, Ford passed on the Fraudulent Mummy. But he continued to crusade against history. The Wayside Inn grew into an all-encompassing museum and hotel. Ford and his wife moved into the estate. Clara bemoaned that she and her husband no longer danced like they did in their courting days. Ford obliged to take up the hobby. The rest of the country followed. The Fords were interested in old-fashioned dancing. In 1923, they hired Benjamin Lovett to teach them and their guests how to square dance. Square dancing was a dying art at this point. It was considered, well, square. Jazz and swing were taking over. Ford tried to counteract jazz's unwholesome influence. He saw jazz as a gateway to drugs, booze, sex, and sin. So, he must have been familiar with bill. In order to publicly promote square dancing, Ford poured more money into country music than any other person in America. Employees at his factories were required to attend monthly square dances. He funded traveling fiddling contests, and he invested in square dancing clubs across the USA. This is where modern western style square dancing as we know it was really created. Although Ford never fully supplanted jazz, he sparked a revival in the square dancing that lives on much to the chagrin of students everywhere. His most successful campaign was a push to bring square dancing to physical education classes. He wanted to instill social training, courtesy, good citizenship, and rhythm to the next generation. By 1928, almost half the schools in America and 34 colleges added early American dancing to the curriculum.
0: You know, I failed senior year in high school because I refused to square dance. Well, I really just didn't want to square dance yeah. when it came no, down. I thought
1: it was stupid. Just say that. Um, his moral crusade had darker implications. He used square dancing as a tool against Jewish propaganda. Ford believed that Jewish people invented jazz as part of the nefarious plot to corrupt the masses and take over the world. Anyone who paid attention to what Dad said will realize a major hole in that delusion.
0: As as if anybody ever paid attention to what I said.
1: Jazz was invented by African Americans in New Orleans. Ford disagreed with this basic reality. In his foolish fantasy, black people conspired with Jewish elites to re-engineer society. It's nice that you can legally say Henry Ford was an idiot. Over the next few years, anti-Semitism consumed Ford. The Ford-owned newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, popularized the infamous tract, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The fraudulent pamphlet purported to transcribe a secret 1897 cabal of Zionist elders plotting the murder of Gentiles. The forged document was unknown to American readers until Ford mass-produced it. Articles he published in The Dearborn Independent were compiled into a book titled The International Jew nazis embraced attacks as an intellectual world model ford was the only american adolf hitler personally praised in my Kampf. in the 1930s hitler personally presented ford with the grand cross of the german eagle the leader of hitler's labor front robert Ley, thanked ford before he hanged himself at the Nuremberg trials Baldus von schirach the leader of the hitler youth testified that ford was his introduction to anti-semitism george lincoln rockwell founded the American Nazi Party after contacting Ford, and more recently, Timothy McVeigh, the mastermind behind the Oklahoma City bombing, cited Ford as inspiration. It's impossible to separate his ideology from his larger legacy. The ultimate irony is that square dancing, like a lot of American musical traditions, was largely invented by African Americans. European dancers like the quadrille informed the evolution of square dancing. The call and response form is deeply rooted in slave tradition, the addition of shouted instructions like, swing your partner, round and round, was created by slaves who performed at white balls without formal training. Ford's ignorance of black music past actually changed his future. In his quest to stomp out African American entertainment, he indirectly led to a hallmark of the sound. One of the wholesome forms of music Ford supported was church hymnals. Gospel had long been performed on the organ. Ford paid inventors to perfect the reed organ. One of the engineers he discovered would soon become synonymous with the instrument. Lawrence Hammond had little intention of working on his namesake organ. Tinking in his lab, he created a more precise missile guidance system and an early forerunner to 3D glasses. His real breakthrough was the electromechanical tone wheel generator. The genius of that device is that it makes perfect sine waves every time. Physical organs fluctuate depending on outside elements. Hammond's organs make the same noise Whenever operated. At first, Hammond did not realize the musical potential of the organ. He thought it might be a fake flute. Hammond was reluctant to make it an organ because he could not play the keyboard. Hammond was so profoundly tone-deaf that his friends called him a musical.
0: And yet he was doing a musical instrument and he was tone-deaf. Yeah. He couldn't play it.
1: In April 1934, Hammond filed the patent, unconvinced his organ had any potential. Any fears of a flop were resolved with his first customer. Two engineers visited Hammond at the personal request of Henry Ford to buy six prototypes. The industrialist held an overwhelming positive reaction to the shipment. He told Hammond, In 20 years, there should be one in every home in America. To celebrate the deal, Ford offered Hammond a plate of his favorite food, soybeans. (laughs) Ford so believed in soybeans that he once tried to make a car out of it. He thought that soybeans were the secret to eternal life. In one sense, he was right. After the soybean lunch, the Hammond name became immortal. With the support of Ford, Hammond aggressively marketed his organ as a legitimate instrument. The Model A Hammond organ most resonated with black churches. The sound offered a reasonable facsimile of traditional organs at a much lower price. Musicians in the pews took the Hammond organ as a new sound of black culture. Fat Waller, Wild Bill Davis, and Jimmy Smith transported the instrument to a jazz setting. Smith's prodigy, Jimmy McGriff, did likewise with blues.
0: I've I've got both those guys on vinyl. I I like both those organ players, Jimmy Mm -hmm. Smith and Jimmy McGriff.
1: The in-house band for Stax Records, Booker T and the MGs, made the Hammond B3 organ the elemental sound of soul music. Booker T. Jones' integrated band played on hits for artists like Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Bill Withers, Sam Dave, and Albert King. The distinctive rumble crossed racial barriers. White Rockers featured the instrument on iconic solos and 60 staples Light My Fire, White A Shade of Pale, Time of the Season, and House of the Rising Sun. In a wonderful display of cross-cultural pollination, Jewish rappers The Beastie Boys played the organ in their hit So What You Want. That, to me, better represents America than any of Ford's misbegotten ideas. As Ford famously proclaimed, history is more or less punk. A rare point I agree with. Few people better understood or personified the malleability of memory than Ford. The sketch of a great tycoon ushering a new age conveys little information about Ford's actual legacy. His true skill was as a marketer. Marketing is all about presenting a narrative you want others to believe. Phineas Bates showed Ford how easily people can get suckered into a good story, the matter of truth. Ford applied a talent to defend inexcusable causes and revitalize long dead art forms. When the origin behind square dancing and jazz did not reflect his views, he simply carried on what they did by rewriting the past, he, in every sense of the phrase, Change history.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Any show, I think, that talks about New Orleans has to be a great show. So I think that was a great show this week. But I'm sure you have another thing to close us with, Nate, and hopefully it's not another Swedish thing. Book, a book, a Apparently it is a Swedish thing. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to do that. But i um, <laughs> sure, you. Yeah. We started the show
1: talking about how ABBA was formed in the wake of Nazi violence. It makes sense that we should close with another great Swedish export that had similarly dark origins. The latest era of Swedish dominance starts with a group I doubt any listener has ever heard of. Any fan of 90s boy bands probably does not need to check out the Nazi punk band Commit Suicide. The only fan in that Venn diagram is likely Ulf Ekberg. Along with Anders Klostrom, the future head of the Swedish Democrats, Ekberg used commit suicide to promote far-right ideology. The radical outfit was hardly poised atop the hit parade. Lyrics like, Men in white hoods, march down the road. We enjoy ourselves when we're off heads. Immigrant, we hate you. Out, out, out. Nordic people, wake up now. Shoot, shoot, shoot. In fairness to Ekberg, he has denied that he was the author behind those lyrics. He admits that as a teenager, he tacitly embraced Nazism, but did not consider himself a devoted follower. Either way, his partner, Anders Klaarström, was not as hesitant. Klaarström's violent lyrics were not artistic hyperbole. He threatened to burn Jewish theater director Hage Geigert alive. In 1986, authorities discovered Claustrom's militia militia-like arsenal weapons. The group disbanded after Klaarström was convicted for illegal firearm possession. Down a group, Ekberg needed a new outlet. In August of 1990, Jonas Bergen asked his friend Ekberg if he could be a last minute replacement for his band. The bass player had bailed on a show to go see the Rolling Stones. A few weeks later, the lineup became permanent. With Bergen's two sisters singing lead, the new group recorded a demo called Mr. Ace. In early 1992, they sent producer Dennis Pop a tape of Mr. Ace. Pop did not particularly care for it. When he went to a it, it got stuck in a cassette player in his car. So, he was forced to listen to the song over and over as he drove. Gradually, he realized that there could be a hit here, and it was. After a few rewrites, the song became the top 10 smash, All That She Wants, the song that turned Ace of Base into Worldwide Stars. It is unfair to dismiss Ace of Base as a fad. Their brief mania in the early nineties was incredibly influential. Ace of Bass was the break Dennis Pop needed to turn his studio into the next center of the music world. The maximalist sound of hits like The Sign were crafted by a team of Swedish songwriters for hire. By a decades in, the bombastic Nordic sound dominated the airwaves. Dennis Pop and his disciples had been the brains behind hits by artists as varied as The Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Katy Perry, Robin, The Weeknd, and Ariana Grande, and just about anyone who else has had it hit in the last decade. That Swedish sound really does seem to be all that we want.